everybody know X, but I've known X to be in this same pain the whole time. X always had a struggle the whole time. Some days was better than other days. But I know, you know, towards the end, it was just hitting me different because I seen that he wanted to change, right? Because we could want somebody to change, but if they ain't ready to change, it's just an uphill battle. Like, it's just not going to work. This time I seen him wanting to change, and I was just like, yo, he might have effed up like a thousand times. So what? This one time I'm seeing him wanting to really go for it, I can't use those old excuses not to help him, like I've seen a lot of people do. This is Nas. You're now listening to The Bridge, 50 Years of Hip Hop. What up, everyone? It's your co-host, Minya O, a.k.a. Miss Info. Swizz Beats has remained on top of the game by being everywhere all the time and making meaningful connections that last. During our conversation, we dug into Swizz's past, revisiting the Rough Rider era, bringing up some of Nas and Swizz's favorite memories of the late, great DMX. And of course, since Nas reps QB all day and Swizz came up in the Bronx, these longtime friends ended up giving their personal breakdown of the famous Bridge Wars. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Every artist gets a zone when they can tap into the energy all around them. It's in these moments where it feels like the universe is pushing you to be creative. As artists get inspired, they make art, and that art ends up inspiring others. One artist I know who has been an inspiration for many is producer extraordinaire, Swiss Beats. In addition to making incredible beats, Swiss has pushed for unsung artists to get their recognition they deserve. He's also someone who wants to make sure that our culture is preserved for generations to come. What's great about this is that everything eventually comes full circle. When did y'all meet? 90s. Yeah, because like what phase of your career were you when you met Swiss? Because you guys had very different paths. It's not like y'all were. I tell you, my brother had played me a CD with beats by Swiss. And at the same time, he gave me some stuff by Pharrell. I didn't really know who Pharrell was at all. Both of the tracks was more futuristic. I leaned more to the Swiss stuff because my brother was managing Nori. And he was collecting Jungle stuff. Jungle was managing Nori? Yeah, that's how the, the Nori <laughs> solo career thing, you know, I talked with Nori and brought him in with us when Pwn was locked up. Jung was managing him and got him out of his deal. And Damn. Nobody ever heard knew about that part. I'm going to tell you that no. now. Yeah. So Jung was finding beats. So that's how he came across tracks from Neptunes, I think, Swiss, Dame Grease, and a lot of people. But mm-hmm. to me, those tracks was hard, but I knew they was the future. Mm. And I didn't want to go to the future yet. You were hesitant. I was hesitant. 
So I didn't even meet Swiss personally, I don't think, by then, at that point. Mm-hmm. But I remember one day early on, we was in uh, Sony's. That's where Sony had a studio, and Swiss was working on the Rough Riders compilation. Mm-hmm. It's not the first time we met, but this was us having a, a first real music conversation. And we was talking about Scarface. The <laughs> movie? Know? No, the rapper. Oh. The rapper. Yeah, man. I just always watched him, and I just saw his sound was the future. And I'm like, I'm not ready for that. But when I get there, it's going to be there. And then now we got Echo and all of that kind of stuff like that there. Swizz, did you have any idea that, I mean, obviously, when that was happening, Nas was already Nas. So for you to hear now that he felt apprehensive about not being able to get up to where you were musically must be kind of mind-blowing. I think he could have. I just feel that, you know, Nas is a super perfectionist as a Virgo. Mm-hmm. And as an artist and as somebody that's special. And, you know, he had a signature sound with different producers like Premier and, you know, a lot of other producers that fit his pocket. When I was coming in, I was trying to just be as outrageous as possible mm-hmm. because I seen that's what was getting the attention. I could have sampled a track that I know that Nas would have really, really loved at that time. But I was just in a different space, not even really on the samples and really trying to create something that people haven't heard before. But I could have heard Nas on Band from TV, and I could have heard Nas on the record Glory with me, Cam and Nori. Mm-hmm. Like I could have heard him on those two joints earlier. Mm. I think the first joint I gave him was the song called The General. Yeah, yeah. You should salute me. That was hard. <laughs> when I walk through, everything stops. I'm the motherfucking general. <laughs> let's go back. <laughs> Yo, let's go back to the Bronx, bro. Just saying that you went outside and saw these pioneers, founders, putting in the work, and you're looking at it like it was just something to do, go outside and hang out, not really thinking or caring, like 20, 30 years later, this thing becomes what it became. Not very many people come up into the game, though, having that family setup, right? You're coming in super strong. D, Y, Siobhan, like they already had this entire movement. And very strong out there. Strong in the street, community. Yep. His grandfather. Yeah. Yonkers all locked down. Yeah. Bronx. What was your inspiration or who was your inspiration making beats? How did you get into production? Well, man, that's crazy because I wasn't really into producing. It wasn't popular like that. I was a rapper first and then I became a DJ. It was just something about the DJ being able to control the crowd and even handling the rappers the way they was handling them. It just seemed very important. So I leaned towards that. You know, a couple of guys, my guy Fish, my guy Kevin, they was teaching me how to DJ. You know what I'm saying? It was crazy because me and Kevin got into a little incident in the streets. I was probably about 12. And then we got into a little incident. And then it became positive. And then he started teaching me how to DJ. And then the Michael Jordan of my hood, his name was Fish. He picked up after Kevin went off to college or some shit like that. And then my homeboy Fish started teaching me how to be on the 1200s. And it started there. But like I looked up to Scott Laurent. I looked up to Molly Marl, but I didn't know they was producers. I thought they was DJs. Mm. I just remember the rap attack and Molly Marl. So like, I didn't look at him as a producer. I was like, oh, Molly Marl on the radio. He's a DJ. Chuck Chillout's a DJ. Right. Red Alert's a DJ. You know what I'm saying? K Capri's a DJ. Ron G a DJ. Yeah. 1200 Assassin a DJ. So... I thought everybody was DJs until I was making intros for my mixtapes. 
and I would do a little sample and, you know, the doo-wop and the bounce. Well, I used to have people rapping in the beginning of their mixtape, so I had to follow that. I was like, yo, people want the, the rapping in the front of the joints. So I used to loop up a couple of beats just with my mixer, and I used to have people from my school freestyle on them. And then people started buying my loops more than my mixtapes. They were like, yo, let me get a loop. I need a loop. I need a loop. I need a loop. Mm-hmm. But I didn't know I was producing. I felt like I was just like looping for the mixtape. You know what I mean? And then Sheik and then my uncle Wah started asking me for beats. It was like, yo, you need to just send up some of them joints. And I was like, yeah, but I'm doing my mixtape. Like, nah, just don't worry about the mixtape part of it. Just send the beats because that's called producing. You should start producing. Was that because Wa was already messing with the locks? Like he was already working with them? Yeah. What was the connection? How did that all happen? Yeah, he was already starting Rough Riders, the label. This is super, super early, early with X and then playing around with the Warlocks. It was the Warlocks at that time. And I used to go up in the summer and see everybody. Like I was cool with X already. And so um, Wa was like, yo, you got to come up. My aunt was like, yeah, I come up for something. I think we officially starting a label called Rough Riders. You're the only person in the family doing the music. You should come up. And I'm making super money in it. I was in Atlanta at this time when I got this phone call. DJing all the clubs. I'm 16 DJing in the clubs. Club Flavor, the Atrium, everything. I was doing all the school events. So I felt like I was making money. You know what I'm saying? So I'm like, damn, they want me to leave to come to New York and leave this money alone? Mm. And so I went up. And then life changed, right, when I went up. And I remember seeing Irv Gotti in the studio. I think Wild Boy Irv, his first MP. And he was just like, yo, this is my nephew. He going to be in here with you. Just show him how to make the productions. Of course, Irv never showed me nothing. He like, do some fashion <laughs> in the keys. And like, all right, boom, 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 here, go shorty. Go ahead, do your thing. So I had to end up learning how to use an MP, like my own. Like I Jimmy rigged the MP to work. Still to this day, I don't use the MP like anyone. I don't use Cynthia. I don't use MIDI. Because I had to just figure it out, which made my style unique. So I know some of that Boogie Down Productions had to have you going crazy. I know some of that BDP and repping the Bronx. I was Boogie Down Productions. You couldn't tell me that. I wasn't a part of BDP. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, like you couldn't. You were a super fan? What? Like, come on, man. Like, even when Just Ice came out. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was a fan even, like, then. I was in Castle Hill Projects coming from school, and they were shooting the Just Ice video. I'm in the Just Ice video wow. somewhere, bro. No. You know what I'm saying? Going way, way back. I remember. Do you hear that, people? Wow. Yo, he had the hat. He had the ill grill. Yeah. And dropping knowledge. Nah, but it wasn't even about the song. It just felt like KRS-One and Just Ice. They just made you feel happy to be where you're from. You know what I'm saying? When, when mm-hmm. Just Ice was like, I'm down, then Castle Hill Projects. Ah! You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. when KRS-One did the South Bronx, like, man, that's like wearing a flag, the African flag. Like, this is somebody that's talking to us. It's funny, though, because you think about the Bronx and then where you were at the same time in yeah. Queensbridge. Yeah. Y'all never went to each other's boroughs. Like, no. y'all would never. It was like a very Nah, you speak line. through the music. Mm. Your music said it. If you couldn't make that music, it was done in life. You had, it's Brooklyn in the house. You know, the Brooklyn, Brooklyn. Oh, it's Funky Fresh. You had Harlem records. You had all these records. So when the South Bronx came, 
you know, the Bronx had their records because the Pioneers, but that was spot on talking about the Bronx. Right. Coming for Shan and Marley and QB. So we felt like, wow, this is the biggest battle in hip hop. And it's the Bronx. That was the first verses. That was the first that verses. That was the first verses. <laughs> that was the first verses. <laughs> yeah. Could you even acknowledge that the Bronx was doing it? You mean doing it as a borough? No, like during that entire beef or oh, during yeah. the battling. For sure. I was for Shan. But, you know, them joints was coming crazy. <laughs> them joints was coming way too crazy. So I just started liking both of them. But you know, oh. for me, yeah. like I always love, even still to this day, I play the bridge as one of my favorite tracks. Like the energy and the bridge is just ridiculously crazy. But when we heard the South Bronx and we heard the bridge, I didn't even know they was dissing us. I didn't even know that it was a back and forth because I remember Red Alert and them used to play it crazy. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, they used to start off the station with the bridge beat. Yeah. So in the hood, it didn't feel like a Queens and Bronx beef. I probably was too young to notice, but I just mm. was loving all of the songs. I didn't feel like, yo, yeah, we got a problem with Queens. Like, what's up? I didn't feel that when them songs was out for some reason. It was like South Bronx. He was getting that Shan and Marley, but it was overall an anthem record. Right. Because he's also telling the history of hip-hop. Yeah. So you know what I'm saying? I was more listening to that side of it. I was like, wow. And me being from Queens, I'm hearing his perspective on Queens that I already was hearing. A lot of people didn't know much about Queens. Mm -hmm. He was coming from that perspective, too. It was great to hear him saying what he was saying. But it was also like... You know, oh, shit, they coming for us, yo. They coming for us. What are we going to do, Shan? What you going to do? And at the end of the day, we were just happy to hear great music. Facts. When you go like worldwide, especially you, Swizz, you travel so much and you've been to so many different places. What have been some of the craziest moments that you've seen the impact of hip hop? Shoot, all around the world. I mean, for X to do Woodstock, I think that was like the moment for me. I was like, yo, hip hop is really the biggest in music. X is on stage at Woodstock straight from the streets and being accepted and they doing mosh pits. And I'm like, what the fuck? The energy, his energy was just transcending. Everybody got it. Everybody loved it. X was just a rock star, the hood king. He was penetrating every part of your world. Everybody loved him. Everywhere I went, the love for X was like nobody else. When he passed, maybe rest in peace, yo, they wasn't showing him this love. I'm like, X got more love probably than 90% of all rappers while he was alive. He could go to any hood. He was a movie star. Mm. He's killing the concerts. His records was selling Motai. That man got a lot of love. That's a fact. In his life, more than most rappers who's on top of the world will ever see. Well, also because I think people never saw the everyday interactions that regular people would have with him on the street. And only now, like, you start to see, like, little clips of him with different fans and how it it was just like seeing the Messiah, you know? I think he also had a spiritual presence that was very unique. He's gone through pain, heartache, hardship. And 
I think that that was one thing that really like stood out to me. Just when he hit that stage, it felt like a religious experience, no matter what your denomination was. Was there a moment that you guys were on tour together that really stands out that you always tell as a story about his character, Swizz? Man, X was just different. I mean, when I was on tour with Doug, I was more into my beats. Like, I would have my own bus with my own studio on it. And like, I would see X when it's time to pray and go on stage. And other than that, he lived a different type of life. I wasn't trying to run out all night with X. He loved to go to the pool halls and bars and all that stuff there. Like for me, like I wanted to get off stage to go back to making his music. So me and X hung way more before the music, before we got popular. You know what I'm saying? Before we got popular, we was heavy in the streets doing everything. You know what I'm saying? From stick-ups, you name it. When we got on, my focus just started changing mm -hmm. to where like he wanted to go out every night on tour to different clubs and parties and stuff. I started phasing away from the clubs and parties because I just wanted to work. I had my studio set up and that's where I felt comfortable. But as far as his energy, it was just always the same. Like he ain't even care. Like, yo, put me first, put me last. Whenever I go on, I'm going to tear the shit down. I don't give a fuck. He always believed in himself. He never really cared about competition and what other people were doing. In making that last album, and even in the in the last couple years, when it really feels like you took him by the hand and was really trying to help him in so many ways, and it felt like it was a journey that you were trying to like really reach back and say like, "Hey, I'm here for you." In a way that I think that everybody in the industry was like, "This is what true love and friendship and brotherhood is." What were some of the things that you were saying to kind of help him and motivate him? I mean, people seen it recently in the last few years but this has been through all the years you know what i'm saying like everybody know x but i've known x to be in this same pain the whole time x always had a struggle the whole time some days was better than other days but i know you know towards the end it was just hitting me different because i seen that he wanted to change right because we could want somebody to change, but if they ain't ready to change, it's just an uphill battle. Like, it's just not going to work. This time, I seen him wanting to change. And I was just like, yo, he might have effed up like a thousand times. So what? This one time I'm seeing him wanting to really go for it, I can't use those old excuses not to help him. Like I've seen a lot of people do. And so I'm like, yo, he went yeah. in now. I got to stop everything I'm doing. I stopped my wife album, everything, because I'm supposed to. Like, I don't get no rewards for that like it's what I'm, if I'm saying that's my brother that's what I'm supposed to do right and he was just mm -hmm. doing so good and we went in and did this album and he did verses and verses helped him get like his confidence back up because he just kept saying after the very like damn people do want to hear some new shit like he's like I hate that I only was able to perform old shit and we ended up staying in LA where we did verses at Snoop Studio started the album right then and there you know what I'm saying like, didn't even go wow. back to New York. Did the whole zone in Snoop Studio. And he showed up on time. He was very respectful. But he did always kept saying to me that it was his last album. He was like, kept saying, like, yo, this is my last record. Wow. Wow. Everything you're telling me to do, I'm going to do it because it's my last record. And not because that he knew he wasn't going to be here. This man had, like, five TV shows that he was ready to do. He had some movies. He just wanted to graduate and get into some different things, you know, that that he'd been working on and he's been getting traction. Like he had offers for all of these TV shows and they were super good. One was on being a father with parenthood. 
things that he loved. And he, he was just like, I'm having more fun doing this, which is why like when people hear the album, they don't feel that we went hard enough. This is what X wanted to do. This man showing up to the studio. I'm not telling him he can't do a song with Bono. Great because song. Because he just was like, yo, I want people to mm. know me for all sides of my music, not just kill him up, kill him up. Who know I could do that already. And our song, Walking in the Rain, we did that while he was alive. Mm-hmm. His favorite artist is Nas and Scarface. Like, he lived by them. Like, those are his two favorite artists in the world. Like, what? Love X. It's my favorite, too. Nothing like him. Yeah, man. Man, I was so hurt, man. Still painful. It's still painful, man. I commend you. You held your brother down, Swiss. Thank you. Like, I don't see that happen. That's rare. Yeah. In these days. And X deserved a brother like you. You know, he was that real of a dude. Yeah, he was. That much heart, that hard as a person. And he was no easy guy to deal with, I'm sure, on the personal all the time. It hurt me seeing him going through a lot of stuff he's going through, but I knew how beautiful his soul was more beautiful than all these guys. The most beautiful, most given. Most given, most beautiful soul, man, than the way these people pretend to be. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to sound so self-righteous. I don't want to sound like I'm the perfect guy or... I'm just saying from what I've seen and what I felt from him, it was always a great thing. So to see Swiss rock with him in ups and downs in every way of it and always support him. And before this album was really, they were working on this in the studio with Snoop. If I talk to Swiss, y'all working on X album. Y'all working on that. I'm working with the dog. He stayed with him. This is a hell of a partnership with y'all two. This is dangerous. <laughs> he mean that in a good way. Yeah, in a super good way. But isn't it weird to see your boy, like, yeah. putting himself out there? He's been, like, opening up to mm-hmm. let the universe know who he is recently, and I respect that. I appreciate that, man. You talk to me a lot about doing that and doing it more, so here we are. I see you. Me and Swiss is, like, a day apart, birthday-wise. So. Oh, really? 13th and 14th, September is sold up already. Do you feel like because you guys are the same sign and so close in birthday that you have like a a psychic connection, like a cosmic astrological? I think he knows what I'm on. He knows what I'm thinking. It's hard to catch him. Like Swiss is more outgoing than I am, I would say. He's the energy side, so to speak, you know, but it's the same vibe, striving for perfection stuff, you know. What was Swizz like when you first met him? Nice. I was just talking about you, Swizz, to Steve Stout. And he was like, yo, when you walk away from Swizz after a conversation, it always feels good. Hmm. That's a blessing. You can't say that about everybody. It's like, wow. That's crazy. Well, he always wants to share his knowledge with you, right? Like, he always wants to tell you about something new, put oh, you yeah. on to something yeah. new. Yeah. Swizz, what do you no longer have to do or that you choose not to do it? I just never liked being in offices. Like, I thought I loved being in the office and acting like an exec, you know. I remember having my office and I turned it into an art studio, paint everywhere, canvases everywhere. People (laughs) used to come in and be like, yo, what the hell is going on in here? I just can't be confined to a room, you know. Like, I work best when I'm traveling the world or I'm in my own space and I just have the freedom. If I got to go in to close something, I'd definitely go in in the office to close something, but to just wake up and just go sit in the office every day. I just know that mm-hmm. it's not built for me. It's built for other people. But me, 
my mind spends too much to be sitting in the office desk. What year did you get into art, like painting and stuff? I've been into art forever, just even when I didn't know I was into art. I was into art growing up in the Bronx, seeing the graffiti all around me. And even with music at the same time, the back part, like Melly Mel, all of them used to have these different jams. And you go outside, it just felt regular. It didn't even feel like it was going to be the future. It just felt like it was a part of the now, seeing the entire subway spray painted. I used to tag. I used to be with a breakdancing crew called GTR, Guaranteed to Rock. My tag name was Loco. So I was doing art way back then. Mm. But I started taking it more serious about 18 going into 19 when I was getting my first crib in Jersey. And I wanted to put some art on the walls, not no posters. So I started going to galleries and I bumped into this gallery, ran by a super great mentor of mine called David Rogaff. I just couldn't understand why the shit was so expensive. I'm like, God damn, mm-hmm. they want 100000 for Dracula? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that was the Andy Warhol Dracula at that point, AP, which mm-hmm. was Artist Proof and the Diamond Dust series and all these different things I, I had to learn. And then I just started collecting, but then I started collecting for the wrong reasons. I was collecting to like make my house fresh. That's not a wrong reason, but the wrong reason was I was collecting in a way that was going to please white people. You know what I'm saying? Like hmm. uh, different execs and different people would come to my house and see that I have the Warhol. I remember seeing Leo with the Andy Warhol Dracula, and I just felt good that I had that shit on my wall too. And it just made me mentally feel like I was on a different level than all of my peers that they was dealing with to have a Sam Francis, a Chagall, the Warhols and things like that. But I can't really say I was really feeling that work like that. You know, mm-hmm. now everybody that's in the collection, I personally know them or I personally have a connection that I can feel before I was collecting for hype, which I tell a lot of people that it's not a good thing to do. Like, if you don't feel it, I don't give a damn what it's worth. Don't buy it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you, you're supposed to feel your art. So you thought that it was an investment at first, buying stuff just because it had like that history or it had the resale value? I wasn't even caring about the resale value. I was caring about stunting and fronting with the art when people came to my house so they could realize that I'm on a level that that's bigger than what they think. You know what I'm saying? Even though I come from the Bronx, I was using the art as a catalyst to negotiate my deals higher, which it actually really worked too. You know what I'm saying? Like people see like, damn, like he got a cigar hanging in the goddamn house. You know, we got to do his deal a little different. So I was thinking Mm. more strategy than actually feeling the art. And um, it's a big difference, but I'm honest enough to tell people this particular part because I see a lot of people doing this. You know, I was doing that in 2000. And yes, the art ended up being worth way more than what I paid for it, but it really didn't mean anything to me like that. It wasn't reflecting some part of your actual life to invest in, you know, an old dead white guy that, doesn't necessarily speak to you and your experience. Yeah, but also, it was the only people that was put in front of us. Like, Mm -hmm. Kerry James Marshy wasn't put in front of me during that time. You know, the only black Mm -hmm. person was Basquiat. It wasn't none of our masters of today put in front of us to even pull from. So you had to Mm -hmm. get those pieces. I didn't even know so many African artists existed until years later. Like Leroy Campbell. Yeah. What was really crazy to me is when you did the no commissions project. Shout out to the Dean Collection. Yes. Designed to fund artists 
and love to you for no commissions, which disrupted the art world. Definitely. Global platform focusing on giving independent artists greater visibility and accessibility by funding these exhibitions, man. I thought that was something crazy that the art world needed. And you being an artist yourself, really caring about the culture, really meant a lot. And to see that on Art Basel and to hear people talking about it, I said, wow, this is crazy. I just appreciate you, bro. Like, you're a great example. You are a friend. You're a brother. You're my friend. You're my brother. Just for you being here and supporting us. Couldn't wait. I can't wait till the world hear our album, too, though. And I can't wait to get back in the studio, me and Swiss. Wait, hold on. Wait, 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 wait. What's going on here? <laughs> what are y'all cooking up? We've been cooking. Yo, up. we've been cooking. We've been cooking. We had Yo, album. but we had Swiss album. has, like, albums and albums, like, in a closet just collecting dust. Every time I see Swizz, yeah. he's like, yo, I got to play this. I'm like, but what happened to the one, that, the crazy shit that he just <laughs> played me before? The fact that he pulled out the record Bath Salt on X's album. Uh-huh. But let me tell you, you know, hanging with Swiss, you're going to listen to music, African music, this music, that music. And we was vibing to this song that immediately just grabbed me. It was called Happy Survival. Yeah, Happy Survival. I'm going to play that today. Mm-hmm. It's just African music, old. Decades old. And they're talking about surviving and happy. And the spirit in the song is great. Immediately, because I grew up on African music. My pops would play Fela and this one and that one. And I was like, what is this? And I'm like, loving it at the same time, but I would never hear it outside. Hmm. So I'm hearing Swiss playing it. And I'm like, we the same kind of guy when it comes to like a lot. You know what I mean? Especially music, man. Facts. You know, I love you for that, bro. Love you for that. You know that. Same here. You know what I mean? Thank you, bro. Thank you, bro. Appreciate you, you, man. Thank you, man. On the next episode of The Bridge, 50 Years of Hip Hop, we talk to Idris Elba. When I was living in Fort Greene, there was a barbershop called Hall of Fades. And I used to love going there because it was just like a big slice of culture pie, boom, right in your lap, talking about everything, you know what I'm saying? I used to sit there. The first couple of times I wouldn't say nothing, just sitting there, you know? And then I started contributing to the barbershop band, and they'd be like, wait, 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 wait. Where you from, man? From Spotify, the executive producers are Gina Delvac and Jason Rodriguez, with additional production support from Leslie Guam and Andrea Salenzi. And special thanks to Courtney Holt, Jessica Dow, and everyone at Spotify who helped the bridge come to life. From Mass Appeal, the executive producers are myself, Nas, Peter Bittenbender, Jenya Meggs. Lead producer is Medina Pawana, and associate producer is Serge Jabrija. Our writer is Gabe Alvarez. Samara Langer and Cliff Cristofaro are our editors. Thanks for listening.